Welcome to Executives Unpacked, bringing you inspiration from the boardroom. A series of interviews with key and senior executives from throughout the content media, satellite and news space, connectivity and cybersecurity industries. Brought to you by Newco Global Executive Search. Welcome to Executives Unpacked. I'm Andrew Ball. I'm a senior consultant within Nuco's Global Executive Search and Satellite and Space Division. And joining me today is Kate Riley, who is our Executive Search Manager. Um, and we are absolutely delighted to be joined by our guest, Josh Marks. So Josh is the CEO of Anuvu, a worldwide provider of satellite connectivity, entertainment and operational solutions for the mobility markets. Anuvu was initially created as Global Eagle Entertainment, um, and Josh previously held various leadership positions at the company, including Executive Vice President for Connectivity and Aviation Connectivity, and Senior Vice President for Operation Solutions uh, before being appointed to CEO in 2018. During his career, Josh has previously held senior C-level positions such as CEO and Director of Mark Systems, uh, an aviation big data analytics company he co-founded. He was also CFO and Director of EJA Aviation Holdings and Executive Director of the American Aviation Institute from 2003 to 2008. He was also a senior executive at MaxJet Airways, a premium airline that he helped to co-found. Growing up, Josh was a young entrepreneur uh, dealing Apple computers to local businesses. Uh, unsurprisingly, his idol was Steve Jobs, um, and he harbored a dream of becoming a pilot. Uh, so clearly a career in the aviation industry beckoned to him. Josh, welcome to the show. It is wonderful to have you with us today. Thank you, guys. It's great to be here. So look, the, the Executives Unpacked podcast, uh, it's all about giving our listeners some deep insights into some key leadership learnings from you, Josh, our, our guest. Uh, but before we dive into the questions uh, part of our show, we like to go back to the beginning. What led you to uh, your career in the aviation and communications industry? What gave you that first start? I, I think uh, over the years, my, my interests and career path has varied widely. Um, I, I probably am one of the few native entrepreneurs who has found larger companies uh, enjoyable and have really you know thought that there's a lot more that can be done as CEO of a a company 10 to 100 times the size of what I had been running before. Um, that said, it's been a pretty steep learning curve. Uh, I think the only way that I got that opportunity was to be flexible about the industries that I was in, uh, follow your interests and your passions. As you said, uh, I, I started my career in technology and internet infrastructure and computer hardware, evolved into the airline industry, and then finally found myself uh, in the space industry, of all things, uh, through a series of acquisitions and opportunities. Um, so at every step along the way, you know, I've been driven by interest in, in the technologies and the underlying engineering uh, to do what we do. Um, the, the team does a good job keeping me out of the weeds in terms of actual coding and uh, too much detail around the operation that we run day to day on the engineering side. But that allows me to keep focused on customers, which is great because that's ultimately where you know, my interest sits. How do you help airline passengers, cruise ship passengers, um, remote workers stay connected, stay entertained, uh, stay uh, in the loop on information and enterprise systems, no matter where they are in the air, on the sea, uh, you know, on land locations that are remote. That's what we strive for every day at Anuvu. And I think I'm, I'm lucky to have had a, a background in technology, aviation, and other vertical markets that you know, gives me some unique insight around what customers and their customers expect. 
Well, no, absolutely. And uh, appreciate you sharing your insights there. A couple of bits that uh, we're definitely going to drill down on um, in the, the not too distant future. But always really interesting to hear people in the space industry who who never, well, perhaps never intended to end up in the space industry. Um, and I think for, certainly for a lot of our industry, you know, listeners uh, kind of come, looking to come into the industry, that's the really important bit that you can stumble into the space industry. You don't need to be a rocket scientist or a propulsion engineer. And uh, well, you're living proof of being able to do that and certainly at the most senior level. So uh, like I said, thank you for sharing your thoughts, but we are going to jump into the kind of first real question part of uh, of the podcast. So now I'm going to pass over to Kate to, uh, to get started with those. Thank Great. you, Andrew. So Josh, let's dive into some of our core questions. So first one, what would you say is the biggest lesson that you've learned during your career? Wow. I think the, the, the biggest lesson uh, throughout my career has been the importance of watching the details in the operation that you run from the customer's perspective. Uh, so are the services that you're delivering really meeting the underlying expectation of the customer? Are you listening too much to you know your engineering hype, to your... Uh, what you think your product is uh, versus are you really understanding what it is that that end user requires? Whether you're in computer hardware or you're in the airline industry or you're in in, uh, in the space industry as we are today, you know that perspective is critically important. Um, one of our, our colleagues at, at Anuvu like to say that organizations in our space tend to think too much engineering out as opposed to customer in. And it was a lesson that I think we all took very personally, as we restructured Global Legal into the company that it is today, because we recognized that where we really had an advantage uh, at Anuvu was as a, a company that, that leased infrastructure that could pivot very quickly to new technologies, we could stay ahead of those customer expectations in a way that other companies in the connectivity and space world who have decade-long investments in very large satellites just couldn't adapt fast enough. So I think, you know, it, it, as you look again at what makes a company successful, what therefore makes its executives successful, what creates the opportunity for advancement inside of a company, that understanding of your end market, working backwards then to what that requires from a technology and a balance sheet perspective is the critical skill that I think you need to have. Yeah, super important. Thank you, Josh. That's really insightful. So next question, what do you wish you'd been told earlier in your career? Hmm. I I think um, <laughs> that that's a that's a tough one. I think when I look at at the degree to which I have, you know, balanced loyalty and tenure at specific companies against the ability to jump to different industries, there's a balance there that I think is is both positive in that it creates an opportunity to really learn certain businesses. Well, I spent five years at MaxJet. I spent five years at Mass Flight. I've now been in the CEO chair at Anuvu for six years. So these are extended periods of time in executive chairs where you really get to understand the business backwards. The one piece of advice though that I would I would you know like to have heard earlier is always be thinking about the macro environment. Always be thinking about whether the time that you invest in a company, you know, as the company is currently positioned is the best answer in terms of your time and your investors' time. Um, when you look at the airline industry, for example, you need to move very quickly. You need to have a, a clock speed that that matches the pace of change uh, in, in macro travel globally and in the cost structures that you get as an airline. Um, 
I think I, I, I would have benefited earlier by hearing advice to every year doing an assessment as to whether your time has been best spent. Again, your investor's money is, is getting the return that it needs to. So you don't stall out. There are certainly times at Anuvu where I've, I've thought, you know, gosh, we, we need to be moving in a different direction faster. Uh, we need to go after some of the underlying challenges that we have in the business that, that are caused by the rapid pace of change in technology. We can't just follow the pace that our competitors are setting uh, in the market. And I think that that advice for any leader in an organization, particularly at the C-level, is, is critical. Definitely, definitely. Thank you, Josh. So this kind of ties into the previous question, but what is the best bit of career advice you've been given? Um, you know, the, the, I, I've had a lot of career advice over the years. Uh, as, as, I, as I like to, to say often, there are a couple of tidbits of knowledge that apply just as much to personal life as to business that I actually heard from my father and I proselytize across, you know, companies that I run every day. One of those is uh, diplomacy is the art of letting them have your way, which is a Daniel Varey quote, but um, it, it sort of personalizes and, and, and captures the necessity of emotional quotient in what you do every day. Um, again, diplomacy is the art of letting them have your way implies that you need to be persuasive in what you do every day. Uh, and you need to make it look as if it's seamless, right? And that's a skill that you only develop really by having an EQ to start with, but then developing it, focusing on it over time. <laughs> Leadership is not about just demand execution. It's about persuasion. You have to pull as much as you push. The second uh, is, you know, I, I think a, a wonderful quote for our space uh, industry, which is, he who hesitates is lost, Right. And that piece of advice is just critical when you look at, for example, what's happening in the space industry today. There is no halfway ground between LEO and GEO in, in satellite orbits. Uh, we are at the cusp of a, a technology change that is the same as the move that our communications industry made 25 years ago uh, from dial up to fiber. Uh, there is no halfway in between. There is no halfway house. You must go all in. And any company that doesn't make that pivot may not be out of business today, but I guarantee you they will be out of business in five years. And, you know, the last one, uh, which I always take with a, a dose of humor, um, is never pass a men's room. And it's a metaphor <laughs> you know, for life on the road and, and always making sure that you take care of yourself first. But I think it also applies here, which is, which is in business, right? If you have an opportunity to top up capital, if you have an opportunity to relieve some stress in the business by taking actions, take it, take it. Um, don't try to bet 100%, 100% of the time because your parlays aren't going to work um, all the time, right? And, and so having a measured approach, knowing when to take some chips off the table, when to get a little bit of relief in the day-to-day -day is also, I think, very critical. So it's those three pieces of advice that I got you know, in, in my family and, and have applied to my career uh, that I think are, are good lessons and good foundations uh, for others who are thinking about the cadence of you know, how to manage companies at, at this scale. Love that. Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I hope you don't mind. Um, I'm, I'm stealing that never pass, uh, yeah. never pass a <laughs> men's room. Men's room. I've, good. I've, I've, heard, I've heard similar sentiments before, but I'll, I'll be honest, they've always been a lot wordier than, than that. And I think that <laughs> that really cuts right down to the ethos of it. So uh, yeah. there you that, go. Josh, I appreciate that. And again, you know, fantastic to learn a little bit more about you and kind of your background and your, your style. Um, certainly love to talk a little bit of industry now for you uh, if you don't mm -hmm. mind and of course yep. you grew up in the airline industry and I'm sure 
you know, throughout that market, you've seen huge changes during your career. Um, but we'd be keen to kind of hear your thoughts on how technology is evolving to meet, you know, passenger expectations around connectivity, certainly within airlines, but of course, across some of the other mobility markets that, that you cover at Anubi. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think it, as you look at, at airlines, uh, and I think you could say the same thing for cruise lines and other uh, guest service providers uh, around the world who operate away from terrestrial uh, cellular networks, away from fiber-connected uh, terminals. You know, th there are a number of, of technological challenges that need to be met from delivering a consistent connection to meeting the geographic coverage requirements uh, that, you know, again, an airplane can fly literally anywhere on the planet, and you need to know how you're going to cover that plane with a level of service that doesn't interrupt the guest experience or passenger experience on board. The problem has always been that geostationary satellites were optimized for broadcast television. They were optimized for terrestrial data communications, uh, for cellular backhaul. Uh, they were never designed as of you know 20 years ago for the types of applications that we drive today where we're pumping very large internet connections over a geostationary satellite. Uh, and there are all kinds of compromises that come with geostationary from latency of the connection to the degree to which bandwidth is either spread out over large areas or limited by spectrum uh, restrictions within certain geographic areas, all of which creates the, the pogo stick of connectivity that you probably experience when you fly a legacy system uh, where connectivity is either great or it's non-existent, or you uh, get a lot of congestion uh, when you hit uh, you know, certain metro areas or from a, a pure technology hardware perspective, you know, there's only so much power you can put on an airplane to broadcast signal to a satellite. So while the airplane may be able to receive a great signal, its ability to broadcast uplink to the, the satellite is just limited by technology. It's limited by power. It's limited by the certification of the aircraft, which creates frustration because you may be browsing the web and you can load a page quickly. But when you request one, it takes forever because you're queued up trying to get back to the public Internet. So all of those are, are technology challenges that I would say is an industry we've optimized over the past 10 years. It's come a long way uh, in terms of what we can do with geostationary satellites. Some of that has been a next generation of technology in geostationary orbit. And it's also, you know, certainly in cases like Anuvu and, for example, at Viasat as well, the improvements have come from re-engineering the modems and the rest of the hardware components in order to extract every last bit of performance out of that geostationary link. But, but Leo as a technology, Leo as a, a uh, architecture, as we look forward, has many, many advantages that are abundantly clear, uh, whether it is the lower orbit of the satellite, which means it's the ease in terms of broadcasting data up, the lower latency that goes with that, the scalability uh, of, of the systems, et cetera. Leo technology was never going to be cost effective as a primary communications platform until launch got figured out. Uh, SpaceX obviously figured out launch first, but others are coming quickly now. And I think we're heading to a world where it becomes uh, orders of magnitude more efficient to launch uh, satellites into low Earth orbit than it was 10 or 20 years ago. And with that, I think the floodgates are now open, whether it's Amazon Kuiper, Telesat Lightspeed, OneWeb Gen 1 and Gen 2, Starlink, Chinese systems, others that are going to be launching, we will see at least 10 major LEO systems, I think, in orbit by 2030. And all of them are basically going to provide fiber from the sky 
that is going to be exceedingly disruptive across the airline, cruise, other mobility industries. It'll be disruptive for a terrestrial as well. So when you look at the aggregate technology environment, so much is changing right now. I think the challenge when you look at the airline applications in particular is which technology to bet on. And from our perspective, we frankly don't have a good answer because the Leo systems of tomorrow <laughs> are different than the Leo than the geo systems of today. So our approach is basically built on modularity. It's built on optionality, right? We will we will provide you with technology today that can be easily upgraded to the technology of tomorrow. But where airlines, I think, a decade ago looked at in-flight connectivity as something they would put on a plane for the life of that aircraft, or at least for a couple of structural uh, intervals on, on the plane. Um, today, I think you look at technology as something you're going to be updating every couple of years, again, to meet the change in technology and the change in end user experience. A couple of points that, that you mentioned there that I think are really, really interesting. And um, I suppose the advent of LEO and perhaps new space in a more general sense is starting to force the satellite industry um, into quicker development cycles than perhaps we've ever had before. When you were designing and launching a geo platform, potentially you were talking 50, 20 years through the end of that platform's lifespan. Now we're talking two, three years, as well as kind of generational improvements that, that can be provided in Leo kind of almost all the time. Um, so kind of interesting that, you know, that certainly from a from a tech evolving perspective, you know, perhaps our industry is now starting to reflect other industries a little bit more, maybe not quite to the point of being able to keep up with Moore's law, but maybe getting a little bit closer to that. Um, but we are moving, especially from customer expectation into a, a, an area of time where Connectivity is almost considered, uh, you know, a basic human and civil right for a lot of people, and they want to be, you know, connected wherever they are. And this idea of ubiquitous connectivity is now a geographical, uh, but also a standards question and, and answer. The how do we guarantee and maintain that everyone has the same level of connectivity and availability to it wherever they are in the world? What do you think is going to be the next kind of most important step that needs to happen in the industry to allow that ubiquitous connectivity, um, you know, when you're in the air? And certainly for, you know, business class aviation customers, for example, um, who are going to demand that to work and, you know, do everything they need to do. What's that next technological step that, you know, has to happen for that breakthrough? Yeah, so I, I think there there are uh, a couple things that you can you can point to. Number one is we are still spectrum limited, uh, operating KU and, and even KA band uh, over, over key geographies now. Um, and that does have an implication as to how much data can be pumped to a dense number of aircraft uh, in a given point, especially when those aircraft are overflying major metro areas that have their own connectivity requirements. Um, I think as, as we look forward, right, we have filings now for V-band, we have companies experimenting with other bands uh, looking forward. There are options for uh, hybrid connectivity uh, across bands and even on air to ground uh, beam formed uh, antennas as a way of, of using cellular frequencies uh, in conjunction with satellite to augment the end user experience. So diversification of band is, is certainly the first point. The second, uh, from an aviation perspective, is proving that electronically steered antennas can be reliable enough to perform in commercial aviation. The jury is, is very much still out on that. Um, I think we're, we're at the point now where people are certifying ESAs uh, for aircraft, whether it's Starlink or uh, Stellar Blue or others that have, have introduced their capabilities in that space. Um, but I, I, am, I am skeptical that those antenna systems will meet the reliability requirements of airlines. 
and will actually make it three, four, five years on wing before they have to be maintained or repaired. And I think the given all the stresses that the airline industry has now in terms of operational performance, this is not the time when airlines are going to be prepared to experiment on technologies that are incrementally better given today's infrastructure, uh, but are fundamentally new and different and involve structural changes to the aircraft. Um, and then I think as, as we look at the, at the third piece of the puzzle, right, the, the question around um, what are the, the, what is the future for onboard connectivity going to look like is a question that every airline should be asking right now. We live in a world where we assume that in-flight connectivity is going to be delivered through the conversion of satellite frequency and data flow to an aircraft onto a cabin wireless access network for delivery to the passenger. Direct to cellular capability, direct to device is coming. It's coming fast, right? Today, we're still trying to optimize direct to device connectivity for the cell phones that we own every day. But it's unreasonable to think that, that our devices, our iPhones, our Android Galaxy devices, et cetera, will not adapt over time to be better at directed device capability as well. That's certainly an angle that you know, is hot on the minds of the chip manufacturers uh, for, for uh, personal entertainment devices, uh, for cell phones, et cetera. So I think the, the one other you know, flag that we need to raise at this point is it's, it's unlikely that directed device communications will ever provide a 5G-like experience on board an aircraft. But it's quite possible that it's gonna deliver a megabit or two Right. And if you look at a megabit or two of capability from a passenger just gets on the plane and it works and they completely bypass the satellite infrastructure and cabin wireless access network, that's a very different market than what we live in today. And that could be three, four, five years out. That's not like a decade from now at the pace at which things are moving. So I think there's a more fundamental question as to what is that end user market on the plane. And, you know, if, for example, this directed device capability becomes prevalent. How do we then use that satellite bandwidth for delivery of entertainment, for streaming 4K entertainment, for powering in-flight entertainment systems, for retail, for cabin and, and cockpit applications? The pipe's not going to go to waste, right? The pipe will be used because there is an insatiable demand from airlines to use that satellite connectivity link for operational purposes. But if you could offload 50 to you know, 75 devices on board the aircraft that are low priority, low bandwidth, and simply focus your, your infrastructure on the highest value applications, you might find that the return on investment for in-flight connectivity actually goes way up in this world. So it's not, it's not by any means a doom and gloom scenario to see directed device on aircraft or on ships. It's a change in terms of what makes money and where you can focus as a business. And look, you, uh, you, you maybe saw my, uh, my raised eyebrow and kind of answered the question before I had the chance to ask it. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, there is a lot of conversation around about the direct-to-device side of the industry mm -hmm. and what mm -hmm. that's going to mean and how it's going to play out and certainly the appetite um, from, from customers um, around, you know, additional subscriptions perhaps if that's the way that it's going to go for direct device but one of the you know the arguments against that has always been in these situations and scenarios you know like being on a cruise ship or being on a, a, a you know being on an airplane so uh you know kind of good to know that you know, both sides of, of the, the puzzle are kind of thinking about how that's going to change and impact the market um a couple of things that you mentioned as well, just to kind of delve a little bit deeper on and, and hopefully kind of get um, the sort of Anuvu specific perspective on. Um, 
but that mobility connectivity market is is becoming a hotly congested uh, you know market mm -hmm. and and not just you know there's been the traditional legacy geo market that, that's been there for a long time and then of course we're seeing the advent of leo constellations and certainly leo mega constellations kind of challenging that um and then these kind of multi-orbit hybrids kind of uh, offerings that, that people are talking about um but what is it that Anuva are doing at the moment to kind of differentiate themselves from the other players and making sure that Anuva stays kind of as relevant as, as they can in this ever-changing market? Yeah. So the the philosophy of players in the in-flight connectivity business uh, can be best uh, sort of compared to the difference between Apple and Google in the cell phone industry, right? Apple runs a closed iOS architecture iPhones, operating system, app stores, et cetera, all in a very tightly managed environment. They're vertically integrated top to bottom. Google takes a different approach. They run an operating system, far more fungibility in the platforms that they operate on. They still have an app store. They still provide the value. They just go at the market a different way. In the in-flight connectivity business, you have five or six players, all of whom are between 10 and 20% market share. So very evenly spread across the industry, very unnatural configuration when you think about it. There should have been consolidation much earlier in the space. However, the consolidation that did occur wasn't horizontal to consolidate that market share. It was vertical, right? So you had satellite operators acquiring in-flight connectivity and mobility connectivity uh, providers. You have in-flight connectivity companies uh, as, as uh, you know, horizontal players moving up and buying satellite capacity, buying satellites themselves, as we've done at Anuvu. So as, as we look at, at the market, our competitive angle is that the technology is moving fast, that the evolution is occurring you know, year by year, not decade by decade at this point. Being fully vertically integrated is a disadvantage, not an advantage because you lose the ability to tap diverse systems, you lose the ability to shift from Leo to Geo and back. You have a, a, a limited set of capabilities in the long-term because you're trying to amortize investments that you made uh, in prior years. I would hate right now to be a billion dollar scale geostationary provider trying to figure out how to market satellites that I launched over the last two or three years into a, a, an overall market space that's changing as fast as what we see today. So our strategy at Anuvu is all about the bridge to Leo, right? How do you take geostationary capable equipment today, provide a three to five year upgrade plan where as Kuiper, as Lightspeed, as OneWeb, as even Starlink come online, there is a seamless path for you to be able to access those systems. Now, we have to recognize that not all of the distribution strategies uh, across the Leo operators have been set yet, right? Starlink has indirect distribution in some markets, direct distribution in others. They're learning and adapting very quickly. We've been right there with them as one of the, the major Starlink resellers in the maritime energy and government space. Um, so as, as we kind of look at the market, we've taken the lessons that we've learned so far in working with Leo providers, and we're bringing that now to the aviation business as well. But fundamentally, our competitive angle is open architecture. We want to be Android, not iPhone. We want to make sure that no matter what the hardware is that you want to you want to base on, our operating system is going to work across the board. And in order to do that, we stay very focused on specific aircraft types, route structures where we know that we can bring tomorrow's LIA capabilities to those aircraft in a an efficient way. Fantastic answer. Um, <laughs> appreciate that and the insights there. And um, again, you mentioned there, you know. Um, that Anuva are looking to be that bridge to Leo. How can you provide that kind of seamless experience to your customers in the market, allowing them to access, you know, the technology of tomorrow? Um, 
today and, and kind of move them towards that ultimate end goal as, as seamlessly as possible. Um, and of course, we've seen a big push for, towards Leo platforms um, for, from so many you know different angles uh, of, of the mm-hmm. industry. Um, and ultimately, I, you know, I suppose the question is, do you think that Leo platforms will ultimately become the most suitable um, for the aviation market, at least, and perhaps, you know, the mobility um, uh, kind of industries as, as, as a whole? Um, and kind of when do you think we might see that, you know, ultimate drop off of, of Leo for mo- oh, sorry, Geo for mobility solutions and that kind of transition to, to fully Leo? Yeah, so I, I think the the the, the analogy that we use at, at Anuvu is satellite capacity should be thought of like an energy grid, right? It's not that any one technology is obsolete or or not doesn't have value. It's that the respective roles that they play in meeting demand will change over time based on the efficiency and the economics that evolves as as these platforms scale. So, you know, as, as you look at geostationary, it's great for coverage. It's great for providing capacity across a wide, you know, space. It's actually proving that, that uh, you know, high throughput satellite architectures where you focus capacity on very narrow spaces may not actually be the best configuration as you look forward, because what you're really after is the ability to maintain a very high throughput connection to an aircraft over a long period of time. And spreading capacity out provides you with that umbrella of global capacity that, that provides the redundancy and resilience that you need to see. So geo is great at that. And it's great at economics, too, once a satellite is in orbit. In contrast, LEO, right, has very high value for speed, for performance, right, for scalability, uh, particularly when we can unlock spectrum restrictions that exist today, particularly over North America. So I think as, as you look at, at the right configuration going forward, where today in aviation, it's 99% geo, right? And maybe 1% starting to experiment on, on Leo with OneWeb, uh, but still not ready for, for deployment in prime time. That answer may be you know, 30 or 40% geo in five years. It may be five or 10% Mio. It could be you know, the remainder in Leo, but fragmented across very different Leo architectures. From the Telesat system, which is going to be higher orbit, to a Starlink architecture, which is lower. The point is that for every airline, we think there's going to be a different answer, right, of what's needed. And in some cases, you know, a predominantly geo system may be a good answer. If you're a wide body airline flying very long haul distances, a lot of variability in terms of where the aircraft are going, right, you're going to have a different answer technologically than if you are a Ryanair or a Southwest, where you have a very high concentration, a densely deployed fleet, high passenger volumes on board the aircraft, you're turning planes over major metro areas, right? Those are are a different set of requirements that need to be met. So I don't think it's a one size fits all. I think it's a a variable requirement as you would think of an energy grid for any, any individual area. And that's why we think the open architecture approach is the only way to attack the market uh, as you look five years out, hard to argue with that. Um, and just very quick, slightly aside question: um, You've obviously mentioned spectrum accessibility, um, you know, a few times, and you know, certainly that that kind of hybrid um, collaboration of, of terrestrial and satellite to gain access to additional um, spectrum, or you know, to, to kind of use or reuse frequency in in, in a slightly better way. Um, what are your thoughts on? optical satellite and do you think we will ever see um you know something akin to you know um uh, an optical satellite solution for mobility especially given you know the difficulty of that kind of point to movable point 
you know, connection that, that they're looking to achieve? Uh, I, I think in, in military applications, absolutely. Uh, I, I, I think we need to solve the problems on ESAs first and yeah. prove that we can <laughs> prove that we can actually do an ESA in a commercial deployment with years of on-wing reliability before we move to that next step of optical. Um, but I, I do think that's the next step after where we are today. Uh, again, I, I think at any, any application that requires uh, the throughput levels of full automation on an aircraft will probably lend themselves well to an optical solution, right? Otherwise, you're having to put so many different antennas and redundant systems on the aircraft that it, it becomes challenging. Um, yeah. And in a world where you're getting automation, the economics may give you more flexibility to invest in optical antennas uh, on the optical receivers on the aircraft uh, that are going to be an order of magnitude more expensive in deployment than what we do today. Um, so I, again, I, I think as you look to 2050, that's absolutely a possibility. I would say looking at 2030, we're still in a world of Leo growth, of direct-to-device capability, of you know, gig, not gigabit yet throughput, but certainly 100 megabit plus throughput onboard aircraft, certainly enough to meet passenger expectations and now start really digging into operational requirements. And from that point, I think there'll have to be an evaluation of both the future of automation on aircraft and where we're going in the space industry to support that. Well, I, I could pick your brains on this um, probably for hours, certainly for much longer time than we have available to us today. Mm. Um, so move on, uh, I, I must. Um, I want to bring it back now to kind of yourself and, and your experiences. And, mm -hmm. you know, over your career, what are the kind of things that have sort of consistently kept you up at night? Yeah, um, <laughs> keeping me up at night. So there, there are, I'll, I'll, I'll preface this by saying, once you've been an entrepreneur in a company that, that is, is scaling, nothing will keep you up at night more than making payroll um, because it, yeah. it literally governs your life in terms of working capital. And I think it's an, it's an exceptionally good discipline to bootstrap companies and not be too reliant on venture capital in those early stages because you keep focused on what's important. So that, that's certainly like key. And, and you know whether it's your money or it's investor money, it's still... You know the, the highest priority you've got. I think that conveys to today, where you know thinking about what's right for your employees, particularly as the cost structures need to change in the space. As you know, we as an industry in space have had to adjust to much higher cost of capital uh, in today's interest rate environment. As we have to deal with inflation, you know the 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 angles of making sure your team is taken care of are, are critical. Um, you know, looking at at again the the airline industry, the space industries in particular, um, what what should keep you awake at night is the question of whether you're moving fast enough, uh, whether in, in the space industry, you know, you, you face competitors uh, at SpaceX, for example, at Amazon, who just run at a clock speed that is fundamentally different than the rest of the industry. Uh, they will get done in a week what it would take other companies a month to do. And it's not that they, you know, just optimize on people, they optimize on process and product as well. And those are very hard things to mirror in a company, particularly when you've got a higher cost of capital, when you've got legacy customers and infrastructure that you're trying to serve, you've got business models you need to deliver, right? There's a, there's a freedom that comes with the, the incredibly quick innovation that those companies drive, the disruption that they cause that you have to meet. So in the space industry, you know, I certainly am, am, am kept awake by that. When I look back at the airline industry though, it's not that different, right? You, you have competitors who are jumping in and out of markets, you have new distribution models that come into play. You have labor differences that you have to manage. 
Uh, it's all sort of the same set of themes of how do you take a company in you know, our case that's uh, our predecessors are decades old and, and get that company to run at a pace that can even compete with an Amazon, with a SpaceX, et cetera. It's incredibly hard to do. And I'd certainly say that's today what keeps me awake more than anything. Well, I um, appreciate the, uh, the the candor there. And uh, many execs we speak with, I suppose, can, can often pinpoint various reasons that, that they've had success in, in their career. Um, but I'm generally curious whether you feel that there is perhaps a single thread that has kind of run through your career that has led to success. Less of those sort of individual moments, but perhaps something that you know almost ties all of those things together. Yeah, I, you know, first of all, I'm not sure that that excelling in aviation or space can be considered success all the time. <laughs> I think we find ourselves, <laughs> you know, digging into markets that are impossibly hard. I, I sometimes look at at my friends and peers who you know gone into much more boring industries and just mint money doing it every day. <laughs> thinking they're the smart one, <laughs> they figured it out. Um, <laughs> but it, it, in all seriousness, um, you know, I, I think that the industry is, uh, you know, the industries are tough. Uh, the industries have headwinds. The industries have very fast paces of innovation. Putting yourself in a position to succeed and to advance is as much luck as anything. It's, it's your ability to, you know, take the shots, put yourself in position to score. But then whether you actually make the shot or not is something that, has a degree of chance to it. And you just have to make sure that you're shooting often enough that you can, you know, get the, the score that you need. Um, so as I look at, at, you know, my career path from technology to aviation, back to technology to space, you know, one of the things that, that, that I see very clearly is because I've taken a chance in new industries and effectively had to start from scratch, I haven't been afraid to sort of step out into new markets and, and take the lessons that I learned before and apply them uh, to new areas. Starting an airline is is as hard a startup as I think you can you can do, right? It's much harder than space because we have regulatory and labor dimensions in aviation. You have safety requirements that are intensely regulated by you know government agencies as they should be, beyond what we see in in uh, almost probably anything but rocket launches, right? And because of that, I think the the key is to take the risks, to take the shots but also to know what success needs to look like as you look at each stage uh, and then be able to persuade financial backers uh, and teams, recruits, that you have an understanding of what's required and can execute against that. But at the end of the day, I, I think most people would agree that what separates the, you know, the winners and the losers in these spaces is a little bit of technology, a little bit of market knowledge, a little bit of customer de you know, depth, but it's a lot of luck. And it's being in the right place at the right time in the space industry, having your rocket, you know, launch your satellite to orbit successfully, having that satellite work when it gets up there, um, you know, ensuring that, that, you know, the solutions that you deliver day to day aren't adversely impacted by weather or solar flares or whatever. All of these things are really outside of your control as an executive, which means you got to shoot often enough to score, even when there's a degree of luck involved. Love that. It's kind of like feel the fear and do it anyway. Like that's a really good yeah. one. So thanks, Josh. And before we go to our final question, um, we're just mm -hmm. going to dive into our favourite part of the show, which is just like designed to get our listeners to know a little bit more about you. It's our quick fire round. So first mm -hmm. one, tell us something that not many people know about you. Uh, uh, 
let's see. So this is probably where I confess to listening to more teenage music than I should, that it's great to torture, <laughs> great to torture my kids. Uh, they, they would accuse me of being, they would accuse me of being a Swifty, which is probably not, not inaccurate. Um, so I, I have very annoying musical taste from the perspective of my teenagers. Um, other than that, uh, I'm, I'm pretty transparent, as you can tell. <laughs> I'm not sure there's a lot that people don't know about me. That's good. That's good. And I'm going to kind of link yeah. that answer to the next question. I'm going to move it around now. So being a Swifty, what mm. is your go-to karaoke song and why? Uh, uh, Would it be a Swifty song? I, 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 I am known to sing the story of us in the car with the kids often because it has okay. the maximum reaction out of the kids some of the later you know swift albums they're, they're good they're good don't get me wrong they're more adult they're more mature right um but there's a there's a certain sort of innocence that goes with the old ones that i just love um but again i i, I have also learned from my kids that i probably shouldn't be singing uh so karaoke <laughs> is few and far between yep oh, i love that so um if you could live anywhere in the world where would it be and why I, I can say, hands down, the favorite place that I lived was Colorado. I lived there for many years until about two years ago and then moved back east. Um, I just love skiing. I love the outdoors. Uh, Colorado is a magical place. I highly recommend it for anyone. Um, so maybe one day go back. But uh, I, I, uh, I have a wife who doesn't like the cold. And if there's one problem with Colorado, it, uh, it gets cold. It's very yeah. cold. I, I think I'd side with your wife on that. I've not been, mm. so maybe I'll put it on the bucket list as well. Um, what is your all-time favorite meal? Oh, you know, I, I'm a I'm a passionate cook. Uh, I, I take uh, my evening conference calls uh, usually when I'm I'm cooking dinner uh, for the family. So I would okay. say I, I don't have a, an all-time favorite meal. Uh, what I do crave is diversity in the food that I, I eat. So I, I'm always wanting to try something new. I'd say the favorite thing I eat is when I'm eating something I haven't eaten before. And it's it's great. Like that, being experimental. So being mm -hmm. um, a cook, who would your dream dinner party guests be, dead or alive? Doesn't matter. Now that's a good one. Um, you know, <laughs> I... I <laughs> I think as I, as I look at dinner parties uh, and, and particularly think about food, um, I, I wish that I had had the opportunity to meet Anthony Bourdain before he died, because I think the Thanks. cynical attitude to, to yeah. food and sort of understanding the role in culture would have been great. Um, you know, and, and if I could have a dinner with him, I would have loved to in a second. Um, as, a, as somebody who's you know, dabbled in and out of politics, um, I, I also would love to have dinner with Barack Obama. Uh, to understand what makes him tick. Um, there's probably a, a counterpart across the aisle here in the U.S. that I would invite as well uh, for variety, uh, so so as not to seem too partisan. Um, yeah. But I think I think Obama had a unique uh, quanti uh, quality to him uh, when he was in office and, and continues to, even though he's out of the limelight now. Uh, so look, I, I I think being a fly on the wall at, at any dinner party with with people who intersect cuisine, culture, politics would make for a, a fascinating dinner. Absolutely. Love those answers. Couldn't agree with you more. And uh, yeah, I think that's a, it's an interesting way of looking at it as well, that perhaps uh, perhaps you wouldn't want to sit and have, you know, be a guest at the dinner party, yeah. but perhaps to just be a fly on the wall to see other people. Never thought about it like that. But uh, probably, anyway, probably should have been a, yeah, no, probably should have been a chef, right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. The literal definition and, and, of that. Yeah. And look, personally, um, you know, Anthony Bourdain, same. Love that answer. Um, I uh, feel 
feel very similarly uh, about him. Um, and anyway, brilliant answers. Thank you so much for sharing. And look, as as we end the show, um, one sort of last final question. Um, what one bit of advice do you always give to others when they ask you, what is that one bit of advice that you would give me? And I will have to ask that it's not never pass a mentoring. <laughs> Um, you know, I, I think as, as you look at your career, don't be afraid to jump industries. Uh, don't be afraid to, you know, to, to follow what you want to do in life as opposed to what you feel you have to do. It's a struggle. I mean, it really is a struggle as you, as you look, you know, further in your, your career progression, as you get to your forties, like me and you, you know, you've been in a, a CEO chair for a long time. You've kind of figured out how it works. Um, you only get so much time in life. And I think you got to ask yourself the question every day, is what I'm doing now the best thing that I can be doing to make myself happy, to serve my customers, to serve my team, uh, to make money, right, as a company, as an, as, as an individual? I think asking that question in a much more disciplined way and sort of thinking about it in, in the context of where you want to be in five or 10 years is something that is easy to forget in the, the drive that you have just every day to deliver what you need to, but it's something that's important from a reflection perspective. Well, look, Josh, thank you so much for your time. Um, we you. really, really appreciated you joining us. Great to hear your thoughts and, and insights, learn more about you, um, learn, you know, hopefully a little bit more for everyone about what it is an Uber we're doing and, and you know, the future of um, that kind of connectivity and mobility industry and, and kind of where we're going to see an Uber kind of play out in, in that space. So um, it's been an absolute pleasure Thank you. to have you on the show and yeah. yeah, excited to see what's next for you and, and for an Uber. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciated the opportunity to join you guys. It was a great conversation and I look yeah. forward to, to further ones. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Josh. Thank you for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, please do subscribe and give us a rating really helps these stories to be found and enjoyed by more. For more information about Nuco Global Executive Search, we can be found at executive.nuco-group.com. That's executive.neuco-group.com.